Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 63 of the podcast, the topic is digitizing medical device operations. Our guest is Dan Ron, lead engineer at Dentsply. In this conversation, we talk about implementing Tulip and i4.0 concepts in a fast-paced, highly customized med device manufacturing context. We talk about digitizing work instructions and simplification and personalizing medical device product operations and about the future of the industrial frontline worker. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators, hosted by futurist Trondheim Mundheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast with industrial conversations that matter. Maybe we'll just start with that. What has your experience been with Tulip and with the topic of sort of industrial technology, really? With Tulip in particular, it's been overall pretty positive, both from you know engineering and management and executive level interest in it, but also from the operator level. You know, people love to see that their ideas and the things that they want to see improvements with can actually get done quickly and not wait for you know software developers' iterative process yeah. or you know every three or six month release cycle. So there's there's a lot to be gained in terms of engagement on the front lines from the bottom up, but there's, you know, a lot to also be gained from including people in the core of the movement, right? So when I look at all of the industrial revolutions in history, from Egyptians to the steam press and getting the steam engines going, there's always been a core issue there where people are needed, right? And sure, we automate some things, but ultimately people still need to now take on different roles. And that's where I see us going again is there are things that are going to get automated. I'm sure some job positions, titles, functions are going to become obsoleted, but there are new roles that are going to be coming behind them to take those places, right? So there's always going to be a place for people in the workforce, especially in manufacturing, even with AI and, you know, the most sophisticated computers and programs that I've seen so far, humans can do so much in a fraction of a second by seeing, feeling, touching, doing, thinking, but sometimes it's information overload. And that's where we have to be able to present them just the things that matter at the point of it mattering. And that's where things like Tulip come in to be able to digitize, you know, work instructions that used to be, you know, anywhere from 10 to 110 pages long that operators needed to memorize in the past. I mean, it sounds very simple, right? Work instructions, but even that right. one application is was the starting point for that, where you sort of saw the value there. Yeah, exactly. When we first saw Tulip, that was our immediate instinct of, all right, we have a place that we can digitize work instructions, and that particular operation was about seventy pages long, read like a you know make your own storybook. If if this is true, flip to page thirteen. If that's true, and this is true, flip to page twenty eight. You know, so you're always going. It's back like putting together time. some enormously complicated IKEA <laughs> outfit. If you oh, had God. that experience, but it's, I, it's I, even worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was absurd, and you know, training times took forever. 
because some operations were just very complex. And digitizing the work instruction didn't automate the process, but it served as how simplified it for people. Yeah. And I guess I'm kind of curious, do you feel like the promise of Tulip, which is sort of a no-code platform, what has your, been your experience when it comes to kind of implementing it for real? So one thing is you saw the value. What does it take for an average person in your organization to sort of, I mean, it says no code and no, you know, no problems, but surely there's a little bit of a process for everybody. Of course. And I think it really depends on, you know, what function you're talking about. Yeah. You know, operators, when they see that we can iterate on the fly, love it. Because to them, you know, the problems that they have, some of them can go away very quickly. And, you know, others sure take time, but either way, they're not waiting on the software development cycle, right? Yeah. For engineers, they love it for, you know, kind of the same reasons that they can iterate so fast and they don't have to go back to college and get a degree in computer science to learn how to program in who knows whatever languages. And managers also like it because now their engineers or their operators or whoever they're managing have tools to solve problems that weren't available before. And then on the complete other side of things, the software developers and the ISIT folk also appreciate certain parts of it because they can then focus their efforts and their software life cycles to the core problems that they have, as opposed to the user interface. That makes a big difference, right? Yeah, because the, the problems that they have the bandwidth to solve are much larger. So for you, the, the problem was work instruction. When you implement systems, and I'm sure you have contemplated many different systems, it's almost like when you see it obviously in front of you, when you see a Tulip system, you see like, oh, that's, that's obvious. But give me a little bit of a sense of what other systems are like. Like, why does it feel so liberating? Like, what, what was your alternative to these things? Was it basically paper? Are we competing with paper here? Or are there other systems that could have done this particular work instruction case? So we looked at some competitors. And at the time, there weren't actually too many. Now there are some more. But Tulip brought a larger package, right? It, it wasn't just promising no code. It actually was easier to code than their competitors. And so that automatically opened up more people to be able to use the tools. You know, And the other part of it is that at the time, and I think even still today, it's not just no coding, but it's also the addition of peripherals. Even something as simple as a barcode scanner, you know, four years ago, wasn't easily integrated with Tulip's competitors. Hmm. Today, I mean, you can have light kits that light up bins for pick-to-light solutions. Tulip also has, you know, cameras, weights, temperatures, basically whatever kind of USB peripheral you can think of can probably be used with Tulip. So the concrete example that I have understood that Densply was using was a shipping process. Yeah, so we call it prep to ship. Uh, it's more like a final QC. Yep. So to understand what the operation is, you have to understand what we make first. And we make dental restorations from the implant up. So a regular dental implant has the implant itself goes into the bone. Then the abutment is interfaced with the implant. And then the crown is cemented to the abutment. We make the top two, the abutment and the crown. We also make peripheral products to help with the procedure. Some of those are 3D printed. Some of those are also milled. And everything is patient specific. So no two orders are the same. So a customer will order however many restorations. So there's 32 teeth in a mouth. You could have up to 32 possible restorations, which include an abutment, a crown, possibly an insertion guard, 
et cetera, et cetera. It's the ultimate in personalized products, actually, right? Exactly. Yeah, there, there's literally no two alike. So they all come together into this operation right before prep to ship. Yeah. And then prep to ship is the first operation that really treats it as an order as opposed to an item. And they do the final QC inspections. They also add a screw that's specific to the implant that the patient has in their mouth, which can be uh, one of about 70 different screws. Wow. Yeah. And in the past, uh, we had basically a, a screen that showed all of the information that was uh, required. Hmm. And it was information overload. It was a lot. Yeah, I imagine. So we've talked about a very discreet shipping example here. What about the overall sort of digital lean organization journey that you guys are on, this overall sort of digital journey that any company has to be on in order to mm -hmm. compete? What does that all entail and how has that process played out in your company? So, I mean, we already have a digital workflow by the nature of our business. You know, we accept digital scans from customers. We do a lot of our work in uh, digital space when it comes to making the restorations and uh, working with our customers and clinicians to finalize and approve those designs. So we're already in the digital space even before Tulip came around. Yeah. But it was kind of that 80-20 rule, right? We got 80% of the way by digitizing 20% of our profit. Wow. So this is the, the last bit here. And what are some of the other parts of digitalization that you think can be solved? It's a very interesting question because there's a lot of things that can be digitized, but you have to ask, are you digitizing it for the sake of digitization or are you actually going to gain something? Mm -hmm. And I think the question of scale has to come in there. If you're doing something once or twice a day and it's taking you a grand total of five minutes a day, what's the point of digitizing it? Yes. If it's something that's done a hundred times a day, you know, and it's taking an hour, two hours, however long, then yeah, digitizing it, of course, makes sense. And then you have to think about, okay, what do you actually need? And then you bring the lean aspect of, okay, take out everything that's frivolous or superfluous to the process or even to the actions at the time. Yeah. If you think about the kind of service that, that Tulip provides, and you know, we talked about to what extent it's a self-serve. I mean, the ambition is obviously to be self-serve, and the vision is that the customer, and ideally the person that has the problem, should do as much of the work themselves, because that's kind of the management principle, right? That you, if you know what your problem is, you're the best one to solve it. We just give you the mm -hmm. tools. In what cases has that kind of fully worked out? And in what situations would you say that you actually benefited from either the advice or the sort of even the consulting of some of Tulip's people? And is there not a balance between even guidance from you guys, I guess, the more experienced sort of Tulipians on a client side versus just completely, you know, winging it on your own based on the library tools and whatever educational tools that Tulip has made available? I'm just curious to what extent this works. I think the library that they have is actually a pretty neat idea for a lot of customers. There's probably a lot of companies though that, you know, I see the future of manufacturing going into personalized manufacturing. Right. And not so much stock to stock kind of stuff. With personalized manufacturing, there's a lot of customization and therefore processes get more complicated. Sure, there's still gonna be, you know, standard process for a lot of things, but at a certain point in the operation, it will be 
different than if everything was made to stock. Mm-hmm. So a lot of companies won't necessarily be able to adapt these kind of stock apps, much in the same way that these custom manufacturers aren't able to adapt stock equipment into their custom process without heavy modification. Not everybody has the ability, the creativity, if you will, to take a stock product and adapt it into something that is useful to them. You know, when Tulip first presented us their product, I think they had one customer and it was a computer manufacturer. And so their demo to us was somebody going through a very standardized assembly process of a computer box. Hmm. And we looked at that and I think I was the only one in the room that said, hey, we can use that for this highly customizable, you know, completely ridiculous process that we have. And everybody looked at me and said, what the hell are you talking about? Look at how just out of the box that is. That, that's not something you can make a custom for construction for. And I said, yeah, of course you can. It's just a whole bunch of if-then statements. Hmm. And I think that's where Tulip and maybe other companies too need resources that can say, all right, here's a problem. And just start with the premise of this tool is usable for this problem. Yeah. Now let's figure out how. How many people would you say have been involved at Densply in this process? And and kind of, can you just explain it from sort of like A to Z, how this process has unfolded? How did you get connected with it? And then what was the process? And just trying to understand to what extent the whole process is different from what it would have been in a, in a more regular client relationship. We first got introduced to Tulip because my former boss's boss was a Sloan alum. Aha, there you go. That's how that first started. <laughs> Never underestimate the Sloan network. Yes. You know, he just sent us an email and said, hey, take a look at this video. See if it's something, you know, that we even want to bring them in to show us. And I'm the one that said, yeah, let's, let's bring them in. This looks pretty cool. Maybe it's got a little bit more than we can see here in this little video here. So we brought them in. We started talking. And we decided to do a proof of concept with one station with this completely ridiculous process I described. And it took us three times as long as we wanted to, to get this proof of concept running Hmm. because there were a lot of brick walls that we ran into both in corporate and from IT, you know, especially from IT saying, you know, why are we going to give this startup from Somerville access to our internal confidential networks? Yeah, that was a big issue for you. That was a huge issue, especially because at the time they only had a Linux server. And we have zero Linux computers in this company. That by itself was months to get over. Hmm. And I think there's probably a lot of other companies that are, you know, large corporate IT departments that have rules that they just say no Linux computers, no Mac computers, no whatever, that startups and I4O companies are just going to have to figure a way around, you know, or develop other solutions that make corporate IT people happy. So this whole like shadow IT issue in larger organization is still real. Like if if it's not super approved or if it looks and feels different or somehow feels like it's uh, DIY, that's uh, usually not a selling point. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to say, you know, why didn't you look at Microsoft? They've got something really similar to that. And you're going to say, yeah, but that's not the solution we want. And they're going to say, well, that's the one we're going to allow. Ends up with what you have to go with. Somebody has to make a compromise, right? It's either the people who want Tulip or other platforms, or it's going to be IT. 
But would you say that Tulip has evolved in that regard? I mean, Tulip now has a quality stamp, you know, ISO yep. certified, and, you know, things are slowly starting to happen. What does that do? Does it change <laughs> anything or does it not? It does change the conversation a little bit because it's no longer, you know, just a scrappy startup. You know, they do have backing, they have certifications, they have, you know, people who have audited them to say, yeah, you know, they know what they're doing. And we also had them build a server software that they have. It's called a connector host. We had them build one that runs on Windows natively so that we could use them in our Windows environments. And so there were trade-offs on both sides. Tulip had to make the Windows connector host. Our IT folks compromised on what kind of a server setup, and we call it a DMZ. So it's completely firewalled from certain areas of the company and certain areas of the internet. So there were compromises on both sides and ultimately we ended up with the tool we, we wanted with the tool. Congratulations on the groundbreaker golden <laughs> blueprint award, by the way. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's also an early start for our awards program. So Yeah, thank you. It was surprising to even be nominated, but it, it was very humbling. Well, I mean, it's groundbreaking work that you're doing, right? I mean... The thing is, when you explain it, it sounds like so simple, right? You know, just digitizing some work instructions. Like if you don't know better, you'd think like that you, you should be done last month. Yeah, you would think so. But I imagine there aren't too many companies that have digitized work instructions that have been this complicated yet. Yeah, I can imagine that. You know, we're connecting to our ERP systems in a number of different ways. We have SQL connections to databases. We have web APIs connecting to our ERP. When I look back at what we have today, it's actually pretty incredible. And it really kind of humbles me to see how far we've come along. Not just for you know what I've led in terms of initiatives here, but we have a global presence now. I have a person in Sweden uh, in our site there who helps us out with that site. And the work that him and uh, the engineers that he leads for Tulip really done some great work as well. So it really has kind of spread its tentacles, if you will, and, and really gotten a hold of some really bright minds here. Hmm. Do you think of Tulip as a manufacturing execution system in a traditional way? How do you see the solution? You, you mentioned that you, know, you obviously have a complicated chain of different technologies and elements that go into your process. Mm -hmm. Tulip is now calling itself sort of a frontline operations platform, implying that it is a very different thing than an MES system. How do you see it? Because you guys were sort of somewhat digitized before Tulip, but you do have some of the traditional elements, you know, ERP systems, other systems. Do these labels matter in the organization in any way? Or is it just about finding the best tools? I find that it's one of those things that you know, MES, ERP, different companies call them different things. And ultimately... A manufacturing execution system, the, the core of what a company needs in order to execute an order is going to yes. have layers in some capacity, yeah. right? Because you're going to have on the, the base level, a database somewhere that's going to store information in tables that are linked, right? Tulip can do that. AX can do that. MoveX can do that. There's a bunch of people that can do tables and databases. Tulip may be on the lighter side, you know, it's not quite a SQL database, but it can do it. But operators, engineers, nobody's looking at a database to figure out what needs to get done to an order. So there's going to be another layer on top of that. And that's going to be a way to interact with the database, with these tables. 
And that interaction may be something as simple as changing things or working with inventory systems. And then sometimes, depending on the complexity or the size of the company, there might be an additional layer, which would be the user interface or the operator level for what do they need to do, like a digital work instruction. And I think Tulip can definitely handle the top two layers with these because those are both user interfaces. The base level of that database, I think for a smaller company, Tulip can also handle because, you know, if you're a small company, you don't have something and everything is paper-based. You know, an order comes in from the internet, from Shopify or whatever, you print it out, you've got a paper traveler, and then you kind of go through the steps and you want to digitize that. You're not going to start with Microsoft AX. You're not going to start with SAP. So Tulip is definitely a great starting point for a lot of companies that don't have anything in terms of setting up the base level of that MES. But as you pointed out, it can actually also work for organizations that are somewhat more complicated from the beginning. It's fascinating, right? Because you'd sort of think that it's a new system. It's much better to start from scratch, but it's actually also possible to integrate it into the process. I want you to... Just spell out, how did you train people in this build-to-order process that you use Tulip for, you know, for implementing? How did you actually carry out the training? Of the operators? Yeah. Did you force them to do courses? Did you sit them down or did you have them just play around with Tulip or how did you organize it? Feed first. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we actually took the process that they were currently doing and we mapped it out and we said, all right. If we're going to be successful and we're going to have these operators actually accept this new way of doing things, we have to have the starting point as close as we can to what they currently do. And so that's exactly what we did. We followed their current process steps on the whole. You know, some people worked a little bit differently than others, but on the whole, we followed their existing process steps. And from there, we then gradually reduced steps as we could or eliminated button clicks if we could. And they just pretty much had to accept it at that point because we said, all right, now we have it. Now it's stable. It works. And you guys already know the process because it's what you already do. Hmm. As you're thinking about, you know, what the industrial sort of frontline worker, what the future is going to be of that person and the skills required, what, what comes to mind? What sorts of abilities and skills do they need to have? People need to be able to think critically. I think that is a fundamental skill that there is not enough of anymore. Hmm. You know, I'm very fortunate in the way that I was raised and the education that I was brought up in to be able to think critically about my surroundings. But we, at least here, there seems to be a lacking of that. Not to say that there aren't people who don't think critically. There are, there are a lot who do, yeah. but it, it just anecdotally feels like there's a lot. I just wanted to point out that it, when I look at your background, you are an operations and process engineer. Did you ever learn software in, you know, in, in school or is this something that you've <laughs> had to basically deal with throughout your career? <laughs> I actually first learned how to program in Pascal back in high school. And I, I took a Java class in college, but that, that's really about it. It's fascinating, right? I mean, because you have a whole generation and, you know, these are not old engineers. These are, you know, relatively mid-career or younger engineers that are now dealing with a digital reality that is so detailed and dispersed and permeating everything. Yet yeah. the training was different. 
Very different. I, I think a lot of the engineers coming out of school now, though, they're starting to learn things like Python and R. I mean, I even, in one of my staff class, we had to take R in order to learn how to actually just pass the class. Yeah. But even Minitab, which is kind of the de facto manufacturing stat software, it's being taught in colleges, but it's also being taught for anybody who's taking a Six Sigma class. You know, you can't take a Six Sigma belt and not have any Minitab knowledge. But even with Minitab, it's only being taught at the GUI level, the graphical user interface, where even Minitab has a scripting component that you can utilize. And there's more things that people should be learning that maybe they're not. Software development is certainly a skill set. It's a way of thinking about a problem that is a little bit different. My last question to you, and I usually ask this first, but how did you get into manufacturing? Because I see you had a bachelor of math. Yeah. That's not the absolute <laughs> obvious path straight into manufacturing. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it, but it's not the absolute obvious thing I would have thought of. So I have a bachelor in math concentrating in stats. I actually originally started my undergrad thinking I wanted to be an electrical engineer because that's what my dad was. Mm. And uh, I realized that me and Newtonian physics did not get along. <laughs> So I decided to try quantum mechanics because why not? <laughs> yeah, pick an easy subject. Yeah, uh, I actually did really, really well in quantum mechanics. And uh, it's through that kind of process of quantum mechanics, realizing I didn't want to be an electrical engineer and a couple other things that happened uh, at university that I realized that math and stats was really kind of my forte. And it just kind of clicked for me. It came easy, if you will. So I thought I wanted to be an actuary because that made more sense than being a manufacturing engineer. But it was definitely boring. And it's really depressing spending all day calculating when people are going to die. It would seem. Yes. So when I was job hunting back then, I came across a job that was a statistical engineer. And I said, well, hey, now I used to want to be an engineer and I'm really good at stats. Let's give it a shot. Hmm. It was a very, very fortunate coincidence for me that it showed me an opportunity that I didn't know existed to utilize the things that I really love to do, which was ultimately making things more efficient and improving on things in ways that other people couldn't see. You are just listening to episode 63 of the Augmented Podcast with host Tronarne Unheim. The topic was digitizing medical device operations, and our guest was Dan Ron, who is the lead engineer at Dentspline. In this conversation, we talked about implementing TULIP and I4.0 concepts into the fast-paced and highly customized medical device manufacturing process. My takeaway is that so much of what determines success with the rollout of technology in manufacturing has to do with simplification. You aim to simplify, you make the process simple, and you choose simple apps to start with. The end result is a simpler work process, which makes you more efficient. If any of those steps are complex, you risk adding further complexity to an already messy reality of complicated supply chains, work processes, and workforce challenges. That's why customization of Industry 4.0 approaches heavily depends on people who lead with clarity. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 36, Digital Lean, episode 29, The Automated Microfactory, or episode 8, Productizing Quality. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. 
If so, do let us know by messaging us because we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the connected frontline operations platform that connects people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Augmented. Industrial conversations that matter.